Welcome to The Bicycle Story. I'm your host, Josh Kellen. On today's episode, I talked to Tamika Butler. She's the executive director of the LA County Bicycle Coalition. She's only been working in bike advocacy for two years, but she's already made a big impression on the national bike advocacy world. It's in large part because of her contribution to the conversation and work around equity in bike advocacy. We talked about her work with LACBC, how she thinks about and tries to implement equity and intersectionality in bike advocacy, her love of cycling, and her secret past as a BMX shredder growing up on military bases around the world. I really enjoyed this conversation and definitely learned a thing or two from Tamika. As you'll hear, I came into it with some faulty assumptions. So, without further ado, here's me with Tamika Butler. So, at the LA County Bicycle Coalition, we are a membership-based organization um, that covers the whole county of LA. So that's 88 cities and unincorporated areas. And I would kind of divide our work into a few big buckets. First, there's advocacy work. So, you know, going to City Hall in many different cities um, and, you know, asking for a bike lane, um, talking about infrastructure, talking about, um, you know, how to use the, the bike path and, and what changes and improvements can be made. So just straight up advocacy work um, is one bucket. Another bucket I would describe would be education. So, you know, teaching classes, um, how to ride your bike safely, um, how to fix a flat, um, just, you know, educating folks uh, around things that, that matter to people who bike. Um, and then events. We do um, a ton of events. Um, and really just ways to engage our members, work with our members, um, make sure that, 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 you know, in addition to, to doing the, the technical stuff, it's also folks having fun because we know we have some members who are all about the advocacy and all about the bike lane. And then we know we have other members who just want to go on a ride. Um, and so we really, you know, try to do those things. And my job as executive director is to oversee all of that. <laughs> and so on any given day, um, you know, today I'm, I'm going to a press conference um, with the mayor of L.A. to talk about uh, a ballot measure um, that folks are going to be voting on next week. I'm doing check-ins with members just to, you know, go over um, projects they're working on. I'm um, having a meeting with a number of partners as we're all working together on a grant um, on making some some metro stations more bicycle friendly um, and more pedestrian friendly. And so it's just a mix of a ton of things. Cool. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that ballot initiative. Uh, what are what are some, tell me a little bit more about that or also what are some of the key projects LACBC has in the works right now? Yeah, so I think um, some of our big campaigns, Vision Zero, we, LA is a Vision Zero city, and we are part of um, the Vision Zero Alliance, which is a group of community-based organizations um, working to, to make sure um, that we reach that goal. And so Vision Zero is just one of the huge things we do. And then again, because there's 88 cities and unincorporated districts or jurisdictions, it's also um, looking at how do we, you know, how do we get other cities on board? So, you know, going um, to city council meetings in Pasadena, uh, in Long Beach, and, and, and making sure that there's a presence there. Um, and we do, um, you know, we, we do that work 
um, with with a, a huge equity win. Um, another big project would be this this Make LA County campaign that we're doing, and that's that's the ballot initiative um, measure M, which would increase the amount of money um, that that the county has um, for transportation spending. And for the first time, a ballot measure will include money for active transportation. So this is huge for us. Um, this is a really, really big deal. Things like completing the LA River um, and really looking at more biking and, and walking um, infrastructure. And so it's something that we're we're really focused in on. And, and the reason we call it our Make LA County campaign and just not the Measure M campaign is because if the measure passes, then we actually have to figure out how do we want to use this money to make LA County more bikeable, livable, and connected. Um, and and if it doesn't pass, and, and we think it's going to pass, but if it doesn't pass, you know, we still want to make LA County more bikeable, livable, and connected. So our, this Make LA County um, campaign will continue on. And so those are... Those are probably two of the the biggest things that are capturing our attention. And then just ongoing things. Our MTA is working on their long-range transportation plan in the next year, so really being vocal, present, and active, um, and just engaged in that process um, hmm. is, is something that we're looking forward to. Cool. Um, you are, I know you're a relative newcomer to transportation advocacy. You don't necessarily have like a long history in this work. Uh, what was your, what was your path here? How'd you end up as the executive director of a bike advocacy group? Yeah, I think so many of us who do this work are, are accidental advocates. Um, but I, I definitely just kind of, you know, got here um, happenstance. I definitely see all the connections from my previous work, but also I think I just was very lucky to, to land in this space. And so I, um, I went to, to law school and I was a civil rights um, legal aid lawyer for several years before realizing I want to be a lawyer and that the, the best thing I can do after that was, um, was policy work because that's, that's something I felt like I could do with with my law degree and the training I had received. And so I worked at an organization called Young Invincibles that was really focused on millennials and the economic challenges millennials face. So the cost of higher education, um, the unemployment rate millennials face, and and most notably, definitely um, getting young adults signed up for the Affordable Care Act. And so I did a lot of public health work. And it was through that, that public health work that I really... Um, you know, got got to know Los Angeles. I moved down here uh, to take that job, and uh, after that position, I went to a foundation and oversaw their boys and men of color and LGBT work. And as I was doing that work, I had simultaneously started bike riding um, and training for the Eighth Life Cycle Five Day San Francisco to LA ride, and it was one of those things where I, I thought it was a hobby, and then I had this opportunity for my hobby to be my job, and why wouldn't someone want to do that? <laughs> why wouldn't they want to uh, do that thing uh, they love to do for fun? And I think it's, I think it's been rewarding. Um, I definitely, having done policy work before, though in a different field, I think that that prepared me for this job. And I do think there are a lot of um, public health 
um, ties to this work. I see this work as very public health. I started riding a bike because I had a doctor who told me that, you know, I needed to be more active. And so I think I bring all of those skills to the work I do when, when I'm looking at some of our policies and it's very much about land use and about how you, you work with cities and agencies. I think my legal background is, is really coming into play. And so I, I feel, like I said, extremely lucky that I've landed here, but also like it's a really nice fit and it's a place where it's not like, oh, nothing I was doing before is even being used. I actually feel like it's all being used in, in different ways. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I saw somewhere that your bike history actually goes back all the way to childhood and that you were a little BMX kid back in Nebraska. Is that true? So, yeah, I, I don't even remember where I said that. Um, <laughs> but, but definitely. And my dad was, my, my mom and dad are from Nebraska. They met in high school there, but my dad was in the military. And so I actually predominantly grew up, um, in Okinawa, Japan. And I was there from second grade until right before I started high school. And then I started high school in Omaha. Um, but I, you know, being, being a military kid, we lived on this base and the base, the base had a, had a a gate around it, you know? Um, and so it was a self-contained area and you could get all over the whole base pretty easily. Um, I was, I was explaining to somebody the other day, like on base, when you went trick or treating for Halloween, like you could hit every house. (laughs) Um, and so it, you know, it was a, an area where we all, road bikes and I I had a I had a mountain bike but my my love was was my BMX bike because we would me and all the neighborhood boys I was often the only girl we would you know go up in the hills of the base where you technically weren't supposed to be and we'd do jumps and tricks and I had definitely a few on on more than one occasion I would walk home pushing my bike kind of hunched over broke a wrist here or there, um, doing some of the crazier tricks. Um, me and some of the neighborhood guys actually built ourselves like a mini ramp that was far too small for bikes. Um, so we ended up mainly using it on our rollerblades. Um, but yeah, I totally, it's, you know, I, I always think about the fact that it was such a big part of the joy I had as a kid. And then I somehow grew up and, and stopped riding. And the second I got, back on a bike to train for ALC. Well, maybe not the second I got back on a bike. There was that initial period that was quite long. I was like, what am I doing? This is horrible. My butt hurts. Um, but once you get past that, I think that the sheer joy comes back. And I think that's something we talk about in this work, um, that, you know, it's, it's about feeling like a kid again. It's about feeling free. It's about having that freedom of, of mobility and the joys that that brings. And that, that's been really awesome to come full circle in that way. Yeah, totally. That, as you were talking about that, sort of that, the, the joy of riding as a kid and then just bikes fading out of your life, uh, that struck me, A, as like one of the most common stories you hear among uh, adults who ride for transportation or sport or whatever else, like is that, they often sort of refound their love for cycling as an adult rather than continuing to go uh, from childhood through adulthood as a cyclist. But also 
it strikes me as sort of just like the core of cycling's identity in America, where it's like for most people still, most adults, like bikes are viewed as this kid's thing. It's for kids to ride around the neighborhood and have fun and it's not part of adult life. And that sort of shifting that perception is still a big part of advocacy work. I think that's part of the struggle we face, right? Um, and and for some people, that's, like I said, it's an argument that works. It's like, this, like let's go back to this time in your life where you had fewer worries and where everybody was, was, was happy and, and just excited to be on a bike. And then I think there's also that perception where um, for, for so many people and for so long, sometimes getting to that point where you had a car was part of that vision, right? I have a car, I have my house, I have my kids, um, I've made it. And so this idea of, wait, why are you going backwards? Why are you going back to that place where you had that bike before you got your license, before you got your car? I think is something people um, ha- have struggled with as, as we've messaged you know, the work. I also think some of that is changing. I think millennials are, are definitely changing some of that. And I think, frankly, the fact that um, in cities like L.A., in all major cities, it is so expensive. Um, and, and with things like Uber, things like Lyft, um, you know, I think there, there is that shift in dialogue a little bit. It's not just like, oh, you have a bike because you don't have a car, where it's, it's starting for, for some folks. Um, you know, to be to be a conscious lifestyle choice, a conscious lifestyle decision, and I think as, as advocates, that's really great news for us because it's it's a different way we get to talk about our work. So I'm I'm curious because you uh, you came to advocacy from a different background, or you came to this executive director position from a different background. You didn't you know rise through the ranks of bike advocacy as some uh, some advocacy leaders might have. I'm curious what your impression of the bike advocacy world was when you started two years ago. Yeah, I, you know, I, I remember going to my first few conferences and just thinking, wow, this is, is really white. Wow, this is a lot of men. And, and wow, we're not we're not talking about the same thing that that some of the the advocates in some of the other spaces I'm I'm in are talking about, and I think there was I think there was an initial sense for me of, of real frustration about that, and this real feeling that why why is everything so slow? Why why don't people know what intersectionality is? Why aren't we talking about intersectionality uh, in, in every conversation? Why, are, um, why am I at a panel with all female uh, presenters talking about how to market to, to female riders? And why is the social media traffic a bunch of dudes talking about this panel being sexist? Like, where, where does that still happen? And so it, it really threw me off. Um, I, I definitely see a lot of growth, even in the two years I've been in this space. But I think I've also grown a lot. And I think I've 
backbone and my understanding uh, of where the movement is. And I think when I'm in my my least frustrated, um, least um, we should be moving faster, we should be doing more stage, and I'm in my most understanding place, what I, what I often think about and, and what I often remember is in many ways, bicycle advocacy just as a field is really young and and I think I think we're in a place that all movements go through and I remember having a meeting with one of our members very early on when I started and they wanted us to sue the city of LA for something and they they you know wanted they wanted to have like an open and honest conversation with me about how the LA County Bicycle Coalition wasn't doing our job because we weren't willing uh, to to take on this lawsuit. And there were some questions around like, you know, they hired you, you're a lawyer. Why, why aren't we moving in this direction? And I think that was one of the moments where it really hit me, you know, our, um, our office is located in a building owned by Malbeth, which is, you know, a, a legal nonprofit. And, and I always think about the fact that, like, in the immigrants' rights movement, there are organizations like Maldives who are the legal arm, and they're not necessarily the same organizations doing the on-the-ground grassroots organizing. There are groups that do that, and they are also not necessarily the groups that that do, you know, that the policy advocacy. So if you're doing the grassroots organizing on the ground, you might not be doing the policy advocacy. And all of those groups work together. And they certainly support each other and might even do multiple of those things. But it's not like in the immigrants' rights movement, there's only one organization and everyone expects them to do it all. And I think that's because the movement has matured. The movement has grown. And you can say that, you know, about so many movements, you know, family rights, paid leave laws. There's lawyers who do that. There's policy advocates who do that. There's grassroots organizers who bring moms together to, to testify at, at hearings and, and we're just, we're getting there in the bike movement. And so it's, it's one of those things where I have to remember that is a movement we're relatively young and we're going through those growing pains that, that all organizations and all movements go through where we have to realize that we're not the only shop in town anymore. And in fact, we're a better, richer, stronger movement because there are some bike advocacy groups that, that just do advocacy. There are, you know, we, we have some folks in town who really are attorneys who are helping um, people who bike who are facing some, some critical uh, issues. And there are groups that do more outreach and grassroots um, active transportation work. And I think, it's, I think that's great because it means there's more people playing on the playground and we, we have to figure out how to play together but as a movement, we're going to be so much more powerful when once we realize that with that growth and maturity, we get to not expect any one group to do everything. And I just think that's a, a natural progression we're making. Hmm. That's super interesting. I didn't know that I'd heard that frame of the conversation before about just the need for uh, moving away from the idea that every group will do every piece of advocacy. Um, I think jumping back to some of your comments about the equity work and about intersectionality, uh, I realize that 
it's not something that's easily summed up in a sentence or two, but uh, do you have your sort of like, is there like a short version that you tell people when they ask you what you're doing with equity, equity inclusion when you have to explain intersectionality to somebody who doesn't understand it? Yeah, I, you know, I often, as you can probably tell by now, I'm a person who likes examples. Um, and so I often use my background as an employment lawyer. And I, I, you know, I worked at a legal aid office that only did employment work. And we were divided into different programs. And I was, I was on the race program um, for part of my tenure. And I was on the gender program for part of my tenure. But if, if, if a black woman came in, and said, I was discriminated against at work, and I think it's because I'm black, and I think it's because I'm a woman, I, I would never say to her as a race attorney, well, I'm sorry, I only do race, so I can't help you with those gender claims. Um, that's, not, that's not how our office works, right? And if she said, oh, and I'm gay, and I think they weren't okay with that, I wouldn't say, well, I don't, I don't do the gay thing, I only do race, right? Because as an individual, she doesn't lead a single identity life. She leads a life that crosses all these different identities. She lives at the intersection. And so when she's discriminated against on her job, she knows who she is, and she doesn't know if the person who's discriminating against her um, is doing it for, you know, one of those three reasons or all of them together. And so as, as an attorney helping her, if I wanted to do my job the best, I have to be able to see how all of those things relate. I have to be able to see how, you know, it's not just that she wasn't acting enough like a lady, but maybe she wasn't acting of like what they thought a, a gay lady should be like, or maybe she was too gay, or maybe she wasn't acting like what they thought like black women should act like, right? So I have to be able to look at all of those different identities. And I think that that's the, that's the way that I see intersectionality, that when you do the work, we are, you know, we're bike advocates. Like, I, I am a person who works at a bicycle advocacy organization. But if I'm really interested in, in a particular neighborhood having a bike lane, and every time we go to meetings to talk about it, they say, this is gentrification, this is gentrification. And I say, no, this is a better way to get around on your bike and it's safer and you'll be more protected and you'll feel better. But I never address what, what, what are they experiencing in the, in the housing situation in their neighborhood? What are they experiencing as far as a lack of services, a lack of fresh food? If I, if I don't understand that, how are demographics changing in the neighborhood? then I'm not going to be able to successfully advocate for this bike lane because I'm going to be talking about the bike lane. They're going to be talking about transportation. We're not going to be able to meet in the middle. And so, you know, I, I think the quote I always talk about is Audrey Lord said something to the effect of there's no such thing as a single-issue uh, struggle because we don't lead single-issue lives. And I think that that's the core of intersectionality. I love being the executive director of the LA County Bicycle Coalition. I love bikes, but that is not the only issue that anybody I talk to at any given time, a member or not, is facing in their life. And so if I can't be able to talk about those other issues, then I'm not going to be the best bike advocate I can be. Yeah. Um, how, uh, how then 
do bike group, or I guess just focusing on your own group, how does LACBC sort of work on that multifaceted approach to advocacy work? Like how, how as an organization do you sort of take into account those broader issues that are outside of maybe what is quote unquote considered bicycle advocacy? I think a couple of things. Internally, I have to, as, as a leader of my organization, I have to hold my team accountable and ask that the, the senior management folks, you know, hold their teams accountable, that we have to know about other issues. And so a, a good example is this election. You know, Measure M is, is the thing we're most heavily focused on. But we've also had rich, deep discussions about the other ballot initiatives that when we call folks and when we do our phone banking that they're going to care about, that we want them to know about. Um, you know, we want them to know about the measure that's going to have um, funding for more parks because more green spaces and, and, and neighborhoods we think is also going to help biking. And how does that relate? And how does it relate to folks in, in the neighborhoods we're talking to? We want them to know um, about the ballot initiative that talks about services for, for the folks who, who are homeless in Los Angeles because that is related to our work. So I think it's this internal standard of we just can't say we care about the intersection. Uh, tell us what they are and, and, and we'll do them. We have to proactively look within and figure out how do we make sure we know what's going on. And we have to... You know, we're we're hiring uh, for one of our policy positions right now, and our our three finalists are from three very different diverse backgrounds. And one of them is, you know, a, a straight up active transportation person. One of them, their whole policy advocacy history is in public health. Um, and and so it's this it's this idea that we do the work internally, we self educate, and we also make sure that we're trying to build a team that's able to work at those intersections and that has that diverse skill set. And so maybe on their resume, they don't seem like the traditional bicycle advocate, but you know what? Do you, do you love bikes? And do you have a perspective that's going to help us do that work? Yes. And then I think the other piece is, who are we partnering with from the outside? I think sometimes what happens people say, social justice, equity, it's super important. We're going to do all this work internally, and then we're going to go out in the world, and we're going to be a social justice organization. And we're going to do, you know, we're going to do more on housing. And it's like, well, LACBC is never going to be a housing advocacy group. We're just not. That's just not who we are. But who are our partners who are housing experts? And are there projects, are there natural overlaps that we can see where we can work with them more, where we can build deeper partnerships, where we can build trust? And because we've done some of this work internally, we know how our issues relate, but we're still not claiming to be experts. We're not trying to take on this new scope of work. We're just trying to be a better partner. And so I think it's really that, that dual track of what are you doing internally, and then also what are you doing externally? to really form real deep, rich partnerships um, and honor the folks who already inhabit the space and are already doing the good work. Have you encountered 
in as you've sort of like risen in the national conversation, the national advocacy world, uh, have you encountered like a a sense of fear or concern from people who have been in bike advocacy for a long time that like in broadening the scope of bike advocacy uh, or, you know, how to define what bike advocacy is, there's like a risk of moving away from sort of the core advocacy issues uh, that advocates have been working on for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Is there? Oh yeah. I, I think there's a, I think there's a real fear there. Um, And, and I think it's a little bit of, of a fear of the unknown. Um, And I think, I think it's this idea that, that some of the folks who are scared are scared because they can't conceptualize what it would look like if you weren't doing the work they've always been doing it, right? Um, and so that, you know, that that's just, that's a natural part of, of history, right? Like, some people right now are really, really concerned about self-driving cars. I'm a little concerned about self-driving cars, but part of it is because that's, you know, that's, that's not my space. That's not something I'm comfortable in. I don't understand the science. I don't understand the engineering of it. And so when you ask me to experience this world in which there are self-driving cars, I am a little bit limited by my ability to, to truly, you know, conceptualize what that would look like. And there are some things I can do about that. I could learn more about it. I could read more about it. I could talk to people who do get it. I could ask more questions. I could say some things that are completely wrong about self-driving cars and have somebody correct me and learn more that way. I can go to, you know, other places where they've already started experimenting with this technology and hear what's going well and hear what's not going well. There's a ton I can do rather than just stay in the space where I'm just unsure about it. And I'm scared about it because my experiences and and my skill set and my comfort level aren't there. And I I think there's a little bit of that. Um, I think the number one complaint about me is that I don't like bikes. I think, you know, some people are really concerned that the L.A. County Bicycle Coalition isn't doing enough bike work anymore. I hear the term bikey a lot. And I think, you know... For me, that that's really tough because I think um, I think everything we're doing is super bikey, <laughs> and so I I think that it's just a matter of of creating that dialogue and and talking more and like I said, asking more of those questions, making more of those mistakes, and and that's tough because for some of that to happen, there has to be a willingness to be really vulnerable. Um, and I, I think that the movement is getting there and, and I think some of the skepticism is okay, right? Like some of the concerns I have about driverless cars are probably legit concerns. And so it's not to completely dismiss folks and say, if you're worried about this, you're a bad person. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's just, are you a person who worries and festers and, and sits in that place where you're comfortable, I just hope that that change doesn't hit you 
are you a person who says, all right, well, let me figure out what this is about and let me figure out what, which parts of it work and which parts of it don't and what I can do. And I think, I think we're getting there. Um, but, but we really need people to be, to be willing to, to do that because it's, it's important. Yeah. It seems like we've been talking a lot about sort of the external component of equity and inclusion work. And there's also this very important internal component that uh, has to do with representation in like advocacy. Um, I was thinking I, I was listening to the, uh, the keynote speech you gave for NACTO and you said that for much of your life you often felt too black for gay spaces and too gay for black spaces and that when you went to Stanford for law school you you found this community where like you felt like yourself and you didn't uh, you didn't worry about that identity well, I don't know maybe that's not the right way to phrase it but you felt comfortable in that space and uh, it made me think about this idea of representation and feeling like uh, there's a, a place for you in a given world and that seems sort of related to the conversation or what's happening right now with like creating advocacy organizations that look like the cities that they represent or like look like a place where people are a place that people can see themselves in. Um, so I guess I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about sort of that internal representation piece of this work. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure I completely understand the question, but maybe if I start talking, okay. um, then we'll get somewhere. That's fair. Um, I I think it I think it depends. So, I and I think that I think that's one of the I think that's one of the like some like I think it's important to hire diverse staff. And I think it's important to hire people with a different point of view. But I think if you go into it with the idea that um, a person of color is always going to do better in this community, um, that's a community of color than a white guy, then that's sometimes dangerous. As an attorney, I did a ton of work in the black community. I was straight out of law school. And I was, you know, in my early 20s, I apparently looked very much like I was in my early 20s. I would show up to these legal clinics you know, dressed what I thought was nice when I have my backpack on and I'd sit down and I would have older black clients say to me all the time, I want to wait for that white guy. Because in their mind, that was their vision of what a lawyer was, not me, right? And so in that case, is it better for me to say, but I'm a person of color, I can help you more? Or as an organization who's sending people out into the field, is it more important for us to have Everyone on our staff, whether it's the person who answers the phones or whether it's the person who's out providing the legal services, is it important for us to make sure that everyone on our staff is able to to articulate our values, to articulate what's important to us, is, is able to talk to, to our clients from diverse backgrounds is able to do all of these things. Now, certainly there will be situations where it is just substantially better for, um, for, for folks of color, where there's just a different comfort level. They're from the community, you know, they grew up there their whole life. 
um, and, and they're just better able to connect. I, I think that that's often true. Um, but I think, I think that's why I often focus on what internal work our organization's doing, because I think the true power is in making sure that everybody who's in an organization can do, can do that work that is important work. And, and I think that part of why that's crucially important is so that the, the staff of color don't feel tokenized. And I think that that's part of what, what I was, was talking about in the speech is that I no longer felt like, you know, in, in black groups, I was just filling the space of, of um, stereotypical gay friends, right? And that there were like certain roles I, I had to play up to or that in the gay group, I was the person of color, um, but I could just be myself in any space. And I think when you spend that time internally making sure that anyone on your staff in any position is able to talk to these issues while also being very mindful that you are promoting and hiring and providing professional support to staff of color who have often been, you know, oppressed and denied opportunities, I think, it's, I think you have to do all of those things together. And I think that's what truly helps with those feelings of, of tokenization. Yeah, uh, that makes total sense. Do you feel like progress is being made at the national level towards this equity and inclusion work, towards this idea of intersectionality and bike advocacy? Um, it seems like there's a sense, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but that there's a sense from mainstream advocates that sort of whether or not equity is something that they put at the top of their list of values uh, that they have to be talking about it because it would be inappropriate not to at this point that there's sort of this expectation uh, that it is part of advocacy work. And so I guess one reading on that could be that people are just playing lip service to the idea of equity and inclusion but I was also wondering if it could be seen as sort of a, a mark of progress that people are now sort of feeling like they have to grapple with the idea of equity and inclusion, even if they don't necessarily uh, know how to grapple with all aspects of it yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think I'm, I think I'm in that space. I think I'm in that cautiously, um, most of the time, optimistic space of, I agree, people feel like they have to talk about it. Um, and people feel like it would be inappropriate if they don't. And people feel like they, they have to make sure they have the right people uh, speaking and represented and, and that, that they really, really, really should do it, right? And so in some senses, yeah, that's, that's absolutely progress. I, I remember when I started in my first year, I would always say, you know, I don't know that the legal world has it figured out. Like, I don't know that being a lawyer is the most diverse, uh, you know, profession and that all, all women and people of color will treat it equally to, to the men they work with, right? Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's still more male partners who make more money. Um, but on almost every law firm website, you will find a tab that says diversity, or diversity and inclusion. Um, and you will see 
that they're tracking their stats about how many female partners they have, how many partners of color they have. And so are they doing that because they get it? Or are they doing that because they, they know they should? And, and I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that when I started in the bike world, I didn't even feel like we were there. I didn't even feel like, you know, we know we should. When you are a law student looking for a job at a law firm, you know without a doubt you can go to every website and you can find that part of their website. You know as a student applying to go to campus anywhere that there is a place where you can find on the website, do they have a multicultural fair center? Do they have a women's center? Like in these other aspects of our life, we have figured out that whether or not we're really integrated and whether or not we really get it, that people are watching and people expect it, and so we should have it. Because if we don't have it, that's one person who, from the moment they see the website, they're going to shut down because we didn't have that. We didn't have that vibe, right? And I don't. I don't know that the bike world was there. I'm also just not sure if all of a sudden, by the end of next year, everyone has that tab on their website. I don't know how much all of those groups have done that internal work we've already talked about today. And so I think it's hard because I can acknowledge, and I, I'm a person who likes to try to be optimistic, so I can acknowledge that we are doing, as a movement, we are, we are talking about it more. I, I don't know that I believe that everyone knows what equity is when they say it. Everyone knows what social justice is when they say it. Um, that everyone really believes that we should be saying it and aren't um, secretly or not so secretly resentful that they feel like they have to do it. And so I think that's the part that is still yet to be seen. That's the part that we're still figuring out. What keeps you excited about this work? What keeps you going? Why do you uh, continue to enjoy bike advocacy, especially now that you have a few years under your belt? I mean, probably a better question for me next, uh, next Wednesday when the election's over. Because <laughs> I think every I think everybody, uh, no matter what kind of nonprofit you're at, when you're in campaign, get out the vote more um, mode, you're like, wait, do I love this? Um, but but I do, and I think I think it's that potential, and I think it's that you know how many spaces do you get to be in? Like I like I said, where you just love your job. Like at the end of the day. Right. My my wife, she's still a lawyer and I get to have days where I call her and she's, you know, locked up in a conference room reviewing documents and writing uh, briefs. And she says, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm working. I'm on my bike uh, at an open streets event, eating delicious food at a food truck and talking to all my friends. Right. So that that's the part that I truly love what I do, that I truly love bikes and I truly, uh, I am truly happy when I'm on my bike. Um, that, that really keeps me going. I think the other piece is, is the promise. I, I never got into this job because it was the bike coalition. I got into this job because LA is a great place to live and it could be better. And I'm going to be here. And I'm going to be here with my kids. And I want this to be a better, safer place for them to ride their bike if they so choose. 
but also walk and go to school and breathe and and have fun. And and this is a job I think as as bike advocates, we are part of making our city better. And and that's pretty cool. I think I think on those days that are tough because we're just really busy or that are tough because it's the day that some article has gone up that I'm mentioned in and every comment is somebody saying that I'm the kind of person that's ruining bike advocacy and that I, you know, I'm racist or I don't like white people or I'm not bikey enough. Every time those things go up that, that do hurt, I think what keeps me going is, is I, I know, um, I know the potential of our organization. I know the potential of our city and I'm having fun. And I think as long as you have a job where you're having fun, it's, it's a lot easier to get through some of those tough days. Thanks so much for listening. The Bicycle Store podcast is produced by me, Josh Cohen. Our theme music is by Will McKinley Ward. You can find his work at fellowcreaturesband.com. If you liked today's episode, please consider making a donation at patreon.com slash thebicyclestory. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thebicyclestory. You can also support us by sharing the episode far and wide, reading it in iTunes, and subscribing. Thanks. <laughs>